Hey everybody, my name is Tom O'Brien. I am a 29-year teaching veteran and I will be discussing um, the ins and outs and the meat and potatoes of the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement. So let's get going here. Um, so, unless you've been living under a rock, you probably know that diversity, equity, inclusion is a very um, strong part of the programming that's been going on in our public schools, especially over the last couple of years. And so I think it's important for all of us to know what are the organizations and the individuals that are driving the diversity, equity, inclusion movement. But most importantly, I think it's important to know um, where does this ideology originate? What does it really mean? And how is it changing the way our public schools are being run? And how is it changing really what schools are supposed to be about, academics and um, encouraging behavioral excellence and, and uh, strong uh, moral attributes? How is it changing that? So let's kind of get into it. And I'm going to try to make this about 20 minutes, so I'm going to really move quickly. So uh, just kind of pay attention. First of all, um, why has there been such a pushback? Now, diversity, equity, inclusion seems like, well, gosh, that just means that we respect those of other races and we believe that, uh, you know, uh, everyone should have an equal equal opportunity to achieve. And, um, you know, all that sounds great. And um, I think all teachers are 100% for equal opportunity and treating people the right way and, and uh, with kindness and respect and giving all students the, the opportunity to achieve and, and to um, become great citizens here in the United States of America. But you know what? If that's what it was really about, I think uh, there wouldn't be a pushback. Um, it's not about that. It is about a very, very powerful ideology based on, unfortunately, I hate to say this, cultural Marxism. And let's get into that, okay? All right, so the first organization that helps to explain why this uh, push has happened um, kind of universally in the public schools here in the United States, it's happening around the world, but this is kind of over the last two years, it's just been like it dropped out of the sky on, on some of our districts. And, and it's been such a strong um, push that some of us wonder, well, why is that? Well, our leaders um, have been very well versed and have been learning about this for a few years now. And from a couple of years ago, there was a conference that was held uh, on racism and equity by the School Superintendents Association, otherwise known as the Association of School Administrators. So I want to talk about some of the targets that they had listed um, before the meeting started. And so the first one, it talks about how our na nation is facing perilous times, long-term effects of racism, socioeconomic inequities in the pandemic. Inequities, that's a big word that's often used. Public education continues to be one of the greatest civil rights issues facing us today. Hmm. What exactly does that mean? Well, as we continue to read, you'll find out that um, our school leaders seem to think that our schools have been systemically racist for decades. Didn't know that up until just recently. The second point, uh, the transformation of our public educational system. Transformation, an interesting word. Um, as we move on through the presentation, I think you'll understand more what that means. Um, now more than ever, 
Educational leadership must be intentional, strategic, and dedicated to overcoming inequities. There's that word again. That continue to impede achievement. So um, it's the systemic racism that is impeding achievement. It's the white supremacy culture that's impeding achievement among our minority and socioeconomically disadvantaged learners. I didn't know that until a couple of years ago. Whoops. Um, these are times when leaders must push the equity agenda. Why are you seeing a unapologetic push of this agenda? Even when administrators are seeing these communities rising up against it, um, they are taught, and I read enough <laughs> of the information from the School Superintendents Association that they are they expect parents to rise up, and that the administrators are taught that if that is, ex is is happening within your district, you are doing the right thing, because only through that conflict can you um, cause change, and that's what it's all about. It's causing change. Our work is about taking action to remove the barriers that prevent children from accessing programs and opportunities. Didn't know that we were preventing children from accessing programs and opportunities. That was news to me. However, it is not enough to raise the issue of equity. Leaders need a plan and a strategy, um, and we need to follow through on it, they say. Let's talk about this inequity that's mentioned a couple different times. What is equity in this, pro in this diversity, equity, and inclusion movement? Well, first of all, equity sounds good, but what does it really mean? Well, let's talk about, let's first talk about equality because equality is something that is a fundamental right that is guaranteed in our U.S. Constitution, the Fifth and the Fourteenth Amendments. Um, the Fourteenth Amendment, for example, guarantees that we are all to be treated equally under the law. There is to be no uh, special privileges or adjustments made to how the law applies to us based on our race or other characteristics. It should be strictly even Steven across the board. Um, and that's great. Um, everyone's entitled to equal protection under the law, an equal chance to participate in society and an equal chance in education and employment opportunities. Now, throughout our history, has there been times where that has not been the case? Of course, absolutely. Um, anyone that is an objective thinker knows that the United States of America, along with every single country on planet Earth, uh, by the way, uh, having studied history like most of you have, um, you would understand that the United States, um, you know, I think uh, slavery was part of our our reality for about 90 years of our existence from the, from the uh, inception of our country. We got rid of it fairly quickly compared to other other countries and, and other civilizations that for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, slavery was a reality. And, you know, I always go back to the Civil War, which was a horrific event. But, you know, over 600,000 people died fighting in that battle. 350,000 Union soldiers um, fought to protect um, equal treatment under our Constitution, equality, and to kind of disband the concept of slavery. So, um, you know, we've done a lot and we've come a long way. But let's talk about equity because the second term is not equality. This, the term that, that is part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion movement is a Marxist term. And it um, was all about the mass transfer of wealth between groups. And how do you do that? Well, the only way to uh, control who gets money is 
the government must take control of all economic systems and must control the wealth. So that is a Marxist term. It's what they do in communist nations. It's never worked out well. Okay. Um, so in education, this transfer may not necessarily be of wealth, but it is in the form of quotas for hiring teachers, parameters set for disciplining students. In other words, uh, we must watch who we discipline and uh, we must disaggregate the data by race. Um, so we're not looking at students as individuals anymore and based on their behavior, we don't discipline based on behavior, but instead now race or socioeconomic status must be part of that. And also one of the biggest inequities that you hear over and over and over is the grading system. And it is the goal of uh, the diversity, equity and inclusion advocates to get rid of the grading system altogether. A couple different uh, ways that we've seen that so far, like in Oregon, they, they uh, passed a law, suspends graduation testing um, for math, reading and, and writing, meaning that it was disproportionate. There were, the white students were doing better on these tests, therefore it must be racist, so they got rid of them. And um, in a lot of the Western and, and even on the East Coast, uh, a lot of educators are battling over this woke math. What does that mean? Well, because there were far too many um, white students that were disproportionately uh, participating in, in the STEM classes, including math, um, they have changed uh, the expectations and standards needed to uh, be placed in these different math programs. And so woke math means that uh, no longer are they looking at objective answers in math. Now they're, they're uh, changing the way they look at achievement. And that's, uh, that's not the way math is set up, but that's going on. All right, so to continue, a few other things. Um, this one, number four, should alarm everybody. Exercising political courage. They're encouraging the superintendents to exercise political courage. They have to be bold, demonstrate political courage to affect change. So when they see that conflict in the community, that's a good thing, okay? Oh yeah, you see that divisive um, community, those parents speaking up at, at the meetings, you, you should expect that, okay? Because what you're doing right now is this conflict is gonna cause change. You need to expect it, you need to encourage it. Now more than ever, leaders must work with staff to confront the phenomenon of a implicit bias. What is implicit bias, you may ask? Well, implicit bias says that if you are a white person, uh, built into your DNA, um, embedded in your subconscious, is the way in which you look at anyone that's different than you, anyone that's non-white. It affects everything from how you discipline a student, for example, to how you teach that student, um, to how you interact with that student on a daily basis. And because you are white, that implicit bias means that you are going to treat that individual differently based on their skin color and you don't even recognize it. And if you say that, well, I'm not implicitly biased, well, denying it is an indicator that you are implicitly biased. So good luck with that. Number six, educational leaders must become true advocates of diversity, equity, inclusion. Sounds great, but again, you're starting to learn um, what these words actually mean, right? And this is a time when educational leaders must lead and encourage conversations about race and racism. Conversations about race and racism have been going on in schools since I've been teaching 29 years. Um, I think all teachers encourage it, it's healthy, but um, things such as systemic racism, 
uh, concepts such as systemic racism, white fragility, white privilege culture. Um, those are all terms that are very racist to me. You're not looking at white people as individuals. You're looking at them as a group and you're characterizing them based on traits that are very much generalizations and are racist. Okay, so another organization that uh, is really pushing this diversity, equity, inclusion narrative is the National Education Association. That is the largest union in our country. I am not a part of the NEA, primarily because they have become such a partisan organization that uh, they're not representative of their constituents. Um, over 50% of teachers um, would consider themselves to be conservative with conservative traditional values. There is no place for people like me in the NEA. So a quote from the NEA Center for Social Justice says, racial justice is the systemic fair treatment of all people, of all races, resulting in equitable opportunities and outcomes for all. Now that should alarm everybody. Um, opportunities, absolutely. But to say that there will be equal outcomes for all uh, goes back to that whole grading thing, that what's going to happen um, with this movement is that you will no longer have a meritorious uh, you know, diploma based on achievement, hard work. No, what's going to happen is um, the powers that be will control the outcomes. It's very much like a Marxist or communist system. Um, equal outcomes for all? No, that's not what an education is all about. You can't guarantee that. That's ludicrous. Another thing that uh, is mentioned by the, the NEA, and by the way, I've taken all this right off their website. We should build from, for, and with the margins. Now, what are the margins? That's the periphery. That could be the kids that, um, you know, it could be minority kids. It could be uh, the kids of lower socioeconomic levels. It could be kids that just are in school and they don't like school. Uh, they may have uh, difficult backgrounds. Um, so it's basically saying that we need to focus on the margins. Now, I think we need to be very aware, but my commentary here is this. By focusing on the margins, disproportionate time and money is devoted to the few, while the needs of the many are overlooked. The margins are very important, but we cannot lower the standards for all to create equity for a few. Now, that just means that by focusing all of our money, our efforts, our time on the margins, well, really, who becomes the marginalized population at that time? It's the vast majority that come to school for the right reasons. Now, that may sound controversial. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't feel we need to um, devote time and energy and, and effort and money to, to helping students that are struggling. Absolutely, we should. But we have to be very careful that we are also there to serve the majority of the kids. And when you focus exclusively on the margins, um, you're essentially um, slowing things down. I'm going to say it, dumbing things down uh, to create what we call equity. And who suffers from that? And I will tell you, the majority. And I don't care what, when I say majority, I'm talking about those that are in school. I don't care what race, what color, um, what religion. I don't care about any of those subcategories. I'm talking about the students that come to school to learn. And what we're going to be doing is slowing it down and lowering the standards um, to bring about something called equity, and that's not right.
and universally designed anti-racist classrooms and schools are the best for kids. Now, what does anti-racist mean? We'll get to that a little bit later. And these classrooms and schools are sanctuary spaces. Now, I put a quote in here from Nelson Mandela. He said, we must work together to ensure the equitable distribution of wealth, opportunity, and power in our society. Now, a lot of people don't know that Nelson Mandela was a member of the South African Communist Party. He was a communist. And um, everything that's going on currently uh, in the schools with the equity movement, um, he was all about it. it was, it's all about uh, the distribution of achievement, for example, um, instead of the distribution of wealth. And anyone that cares about education knows that it has to be meritorious. It has to be earned. Hard work, dedication need to be part of the formula. And uh, those Marxist ideals just don't work. Let's continue. So students' learnings are highly influenced by oppressive systems, including oppressive grading systems. Now, this is right off the NEA website. So grades, they're, they're trying to phase out grades. And one of the goals of the NEA is to get rid of the grading systems because they are based on competition and personal achievement. In a Marxist system, grades do not matter, equity matters. And that's what I've been trying to hit on. And this is from um, Eseo Inau, and this person was quoted on the site, a high school diploma is a fundamental right. Um, grading is almost always employed in order to control students, force students to be accountable and measure or rank students, either against each other or against a single standard. Each of these purposes for grading in classrooms is detrimental to learning generally and more harmful to many students of color and ratio linguistically diverse students. Okay, so that kind of says it all right there. Um, grading is essentially evil and is constantly working against the minority students or the marginalized students. And the National Education Association believes that in order to achieve racial and social justice, educators must acknowledge the existence of white supremacy culture as a primary root cause of institutional racism, structural racism, and white privilege. White supremacy culture perpetually exploit and oppress people of color and serve as a detriment to racial justice. Okay, folks, there you heard it right there. So who is to blame for any negative thing going on in, with, within the schools? And why are some students that, why are some students struggling academically? Uh, it has nothing to do with the homes that they come from. It has nothing to do with how much that family supports education. It's all about the white people and uh, white privilege culture. All right, these are a few business items that I thought you would find interesting. Um, and there's uh, Joe Biden, of course. Um, the NEA is 98% of all of the uh, PAC money um, goes to Democratic candidates. The NEA is a hyper-partisan organization. Again, why they cannot represent me. So new business item 11, this is at one of the national conferences. Uh, directed the NEA to incorporate the concept of white fragility into NEA trainings and staff development, literature, and other existing communications on social, gender, LGBTQIA, and racial justice whenever and wherever context and expense allows. Um, another new business item that was approved, supporting the Federal Equality Act that is opposed by many Christians and could compel public school teachers by federal law to affirm student transgender choices and gay marriage, even if these are against their personal religious convictions. And new business item 19, 
promotes the Black Lives Matter Week of Action in schools during the Black History Month that started in 2020 and um, demonstrates support for the demands of the BLM Week of Action. So anyway, if you've been following the news lately, uh, Black Lives Matter, I mean, come on, Black Lives Matter, of course, Black Lives Matter. We all recognize that and, and we affirm that. Um, but the reality is each individual is a human being and each individual's life matter. I don't care what race you are. That's obvious. But if you've been following, um, let's see if I can click on this real quick. Yeah. So um, it, it ends up that, that Black Lives Matter is an incredibly corrupt organization. Right now there's $60 million that is just missing. And it just so happens that uh, a few of the um, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, are buying tremendous uh, mansions and estates in places like Southern California. They're spending millions. And so uh, they're living it up. And this money that is supposed to go to help black communities is not. And I think that's important to know. Um, you know, I was skeptical of that organization from the get go. And in the summer of 2020, when they essentially burned down cities, um, and boy, if you spoke out against Black Lives Matter, you're a racist. Uh, no, I'm an objective thinker, and I don't go along with the crowd. And you know what? More of us need to think that way. All right, so the Black Lives Matter organization, uh, the founders, Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza, are trained organizers and Marxist activists. So um, a quote here by Patrice Cullors. That's her right down here. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories. I think that we are really tried, what we really tried to do is build a movement that could be utilized by many, many black folk. But that first little statement right there, we are trained Marxists. And that's important to know. No, I didn't make this up. This is taken, uh, there's right on, you go to YouTube, you can um, see her actually saying this. I mean, this is, this is a reality. And um, another excerpt that was one of the founding principles of BLM was removed from their website when they got uh, outcry from both sides of the aisle, Republicans, Democrats, independents were angry. We disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family, um, the family structure, meaning that they believe that, um, you know, children should be raised by the public schools and by people in the community and the parents shouldn't have the exclusive rights to bringing up their kids. That's pretty sick. All right. Another person driving the narrative is a, a, one of the New York Times bestselling authors, Ibram X. Kendi. There he is right there. And he's got some very interesting thoughts. Now, his book has been a top seller for a long, long time. And I know a lot of teachers that I work with have read the book. Um, I read a lot of articles that he's written, and I've listened to him speak. Um, I'm not going to buy the book, but um, he defines inequity as inequality of outcome, not as inequality of opportunity. And what that means is that um, any differences between groups can be based on racial inequity, racism. And for example, if a greater percentage of whites own homes than blacks, that's racial inequity. If whites have more wealth than blacks, that's racial inequity. And I, I found a really good article written by this professor at Boyce College, and I liked how he analyzed this book 
And so I used some of his thoughts um, that were parallel to what I was thinking when I was reading some of the articles by Kendi. So anti-racism is aimed at eliminating racial inequity to produce racial equity. Um, and he argues, Kendi, that racial discrimination is not inherently racist. And here's what he means by that. The defining question is whether the discrimination is creating equity or inequity. If discrimination is creating equity, it is anti-racist. So discrimination can be a very good thing, is what he's saying. If discrimination is creating inequity, it is racist. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. In other words, we need to set quotas. We need to discriminate against the whites in order to bring equity among the marginalized or those of other races. And so uh, in this case, being um, racist, I guess, is a good thing if you're racist against white people. So in short, Kenny believes that we need racial discrimination in public policy in order to elevate blacks. And the other thing that I hate about that concept is the fact that, and I've, I've listened to, I've talked to a lot of black people that absolutely resent this concept because what they say is, well, this concept, they say, means that our success, our happiness, our achievement is dependent upon how the white person treats us. In other words, is the white person going to give us the opportunity or recognize us for our achievement? That's so, that's such a sick concept to me because um, in my opinion, I don't care what race, what ethnic background you are. I don't care what religion. I don't care what your preferences for a number of different things are. Um, it is through your own hard work and resolute determination. That's how you achieve, okay? And it's just, ugh, I hate it. Um, Kendi also says that being an anti-racist means you need to be anti-capitalist. A quote that he says is, is to love capitalism is to end up loving racism. Um, he said that you cannot be anti-racist while supporting capitalist policies. Why? Because the history of capitalism uh, testifies to its moral failure. It has introduced into the world warring, classing, slave trading, enslaving, colonizing, depressing wages, and dis dispossessing land and labor and resources and rights. To love capitalism is to end up loving racism. And so, um, I don't know. I mean, that couldn't be a more Marxist concept. Uh, the free market idea is that uh, private ownership of business, competition, um, and an individual's choice of what profession to go into, how hard they want to work, and again, uh, their determination to work hard for success is going to be the determining factor as to whether or not they succeed. To say that um, this basically says that in the, the idea of capitalism is wrong because there should be a central governing body that dispenses equally to all, bringing equity to all, and that is a Marxist concept. Um, Karl Marx, my object in life is to dethrone God and destroy capitalism, period, exclamation point. Kendi is right on board with it. You can argue with me on that one, but it, the more I read of his writings, he is that is what he is all about. 
Another author is uh, one of the New York Times bestselling authors. And uh, again, very, uh, the title White Fragility is, is readily read in, in the educational circles that I know of. And a quote that she has in one of her, uh, in her book, White Fragility, is that white supremacy is more than the idea that whites are superior to people of color. It is the deeper premise that supports this idea, the definition of whites as the norm or standard for human and people of color as a deviation from that norm. That's sick. I hate to hear that. Well, Tom, you don't really get it because you're white. No, I don't. You know, I am a Christian. And I think that uh, if you look at people through the eyes of Christ, which I try to do, I'm not saying that I'm, um, you know, I'm perfect when it, with regard to that. However, that is an effort that I make and I try to do that and uh, to look at people based on the color of their skin um, as opposed to the content of their character, who they are as a human being, what resides deep in their soul, how they treat other people, um, the different things that they've learned through life experience um, to just trivialize um, humanity by looking at the color of one's skin is just, to me, is, is pretty sick. And, and my commentary on that one is while she becomes super rich selling the idea of white supremacy, which is a racist concept, she doesn't realize that her writings are doing exactly what she is pushing against, generalizing and classifying people based on their skin color. Hello, the definition of racism. So my final thoughts, you know, I think <clears throat> if you are part of the politically correct movement, you will continue to paint public schools as systemically racist. As long as there is disproportionality and achievement and disciplinary referrals, for example, um, and according to new woke ideologies, the work ethic, attitude, behavior, attendance, individual ability plays a very small role influencing influencing inequity. Um, it's the teachers, the systemically racist policies, white privilege, white supremacy culture that creates oppressive learning environments that prevents the marginalized students from succeeding. Really? I mean, you know, something I've done for 29 years and I'm being told by the unions that are supposed to support teachers and by the educational leaders, administrators, that all of the sudden this organization that I've worked for for almost 30 years is systemically racist that prevents students of color or minority populations from succeeding and the union and the school leaders are supposed to be advocates for public education i mean honestly if i'm a parent and i'm hearing these virtue signaling organizations and individuals saying how terrible schools are why would i want to send my kids to the public schools seriously think about it so does this seem counter to the ideals of, of uh, individualism that um, the United States foundational values were built on the individual? Hard work, respect, resiliency, determination, the keys to unlocking the American dream. Now we're telling people if they are of the marginalized population that it's all that the keys to their success is all about the white person. All that does is it gives more power to individuals. And it says that those individuals control the success and the futures and the achievement of others. That's wrong. 
Um, I can't believe that people actually think this. So my final thoughts continued. Um, I think we have to stand against this. This is a, an evil ideology. It, 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 it uses race, gender, and a number of different um, attributes of, of people to pit us against each other rather than focusing on our common humanity. Uh, each of us is um, a being that struggles, that has challenges, that has to work very hard to succeed. And that's the way it should be. Um, and these struggles that we go through are what build character. You know, I, it seems that uh, what we're trying to do is we're trying to remove all barriers for a certain group of people. Um, now, we're also saying not only are we trying to remove barriers for this certain group of people, but we're saying that every single barrier can be blamed on white people. And come on, uh, really? I, an objective thinker should be able to um, dress down this ideology and say, this is wrong. It is so wrong and so unhealthy to create um, within our schools you know, two categories of the oppressors and the oppressed. Uh, it's, it's just wrong. The perpetrators and the victims. Why are, how is this going to help bring unity to the culture of our schools and our communities? It's just, it's wrong. Although some see this victim culture as virtuous um, and, and love to self-flagellate like they did in the Middle Ages where the, the groups of people would wander through the villages during the the times of the bubonic plague and whipped themselves, taking on and suffering because of the sins of the people. And that was going to, you know, absolve them of their sins um, so that the plague would no longer um, fall upon these villages and destroy the lives of countless human beings. How did that work? It didn't work at all. And white people, a lot of them, seem to think that this virtuous behavior is going to be a healthy thing it's not it's it's uh, it's ridiculous it's it's uh, it's evil i'll call it what it is okay um and it's discounting the capabilities of minority populations they're every bit as capable um and they they don't most uh, minority populations can't stand this uh the victimhood culture that's that's being installed in our schools. They hate it. So the countries that have adopted these divisive systems like Venezuela and Cuba uh, are essentially destroyed from within. They're rotting from within. And it's so sad. High academic and behavioral standards must be encouraged for each individual. We don't care the color. We don't care the different preferences. Um, we must promote a mindset of victory over victimhood for all of our students. And parents that are voicing their concerns, good for you. A lot of them have pulled their students. Um, I'll get into that in just a second. But it's because of these programs like diversity, equity, inclusion, which is essentially a subcategory of critical race theory. <clears throat> incredibly unhealthy, incredibly destructive, incredibly divisive. And um, it, it will lead to a mass exodus, I'm telling you right now. Uh, this should terrify all educational leaders, folks. Wake up. So public schools are losing students. And since the pandemic and since people really started to uh, become awakened to this um, diversity, equity, inclusion, critical race theory push, um, 
There's been a drop in public school enrollment of 3.8% over the previous school year of 2019-20. Um, that's about 2 million students that, that we've lost. Now, why is that? Well, I just think that uh, when students were remote learning and, and uh, since the last couple of years, there's been this huge um, diversity, equity, inclusion push um, that parents became more aware. Um, the schools became emboldened. And with the transition of a new administration, and, and it created this uh, empowerment where, you know, it's not being hidden anymore. I mean, uh, schools are promoting this ideology and they don't care what parents say. Parents are coming to meetings and speaking up and they're being labeled as racist. They're being labeled as domestic terrorists. I'm telling you folks, people are leaving the schools and it's gonna happen in greater numbers unless schools find out for themselves sooner than later that they need to adopt a position of neutrality within the schools. Schools should not be places where teachers are promoting a political ideology. And it's happening and it shouldn't. So just to give you an idea, even during the pandemic, the NEA, um, it's been proven through uh, emails and messages back and forth between the CDC and, and some of the teachers union leaders that uh, it says here the lobbying paid off in at least two instances, language suggestions offered by the union were adopted nearly verbatim into the final text of the CDC. So a lot of the policies that parents were very angry about, some of the masking policies and some of the, the shutdown or lockdown policies where kids weren't allowed to go to school, a lot of that was dictated um, or at least heavily influenced by the unions putting pressure on the CDC. Yes, folks, the CDC is not a neutral organization, is not objective in its thought. It is very political. And folks, what's going on right now in this world and in our country is um, our intelligence organizations, organizations that are meant to be neutral and to look objectively at everything going on, especially when it comes to the health of individuals. Um, each individual's health should be looked at objectively and a one size fits all approach to health is sick. It really, it's, it's devastating to our common humanity because it's divisive. It's telling everyone that you need to follow these, these mandates are, are the most divisive thing that I've ever seen in, in, in my 53 years. And um, it's, it's pretty shocking to see that the teachers unions, actually were influencing a lot of the policy that was supposed to be just um, policy based on what's best for the individuals. Instead, no, it was what was best and politically expedient, um, what was best for their political party that was dictating policy. And uh, that's wrong. So, hey, thanks for listening today. I went on way longer than I should have, but um, hopefully you learned something and um, Shoot me an email if you have any questions, tbone68 at gmail.com. Thanks.